one knows how to play poker. 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 But do you know how to play poker well? Well, get ready to talk poker strategy with the people who run the games. Hear interviews with the stars. Get information on when to play, where to play, and how to play better poker. 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 This is Poker Action Live, a weekly poker show with your hosts, Big Dave Lemon and Joe Rodriguez. And welcome once again, everyone. Big Dave Lemon along with Chris Bolek in the studio here. So uh, looking forward to a fun show. Chris uh, winning a bracelet this summer out at the World Series of Poker. And we'll talk about that. I also uh, kind of in- induced him to come in and be kind of a co-host, too. So we won't just talk about what he did out there. We'll also talk about uh, his thoughts about the main event. Uh, we'll analyze a couple of hands if we can, and uh, we'll have some fun. Uh, start off the show. Joe is not here tonight, and I, I did want to mention that... Uh, Kind of some distressing news that uh, that Joe had a minor stroke uh, over the weekend, and uh, he's doing fine. He seems in good spirits, and uh, I don't know how long he'll be off the show, but uh, uh, very scary situation. Uh, we're both about the same age in our late 50s, and uh, he was driving a car when it happened, and it wasn't a dangerous situation to the point where he almost had gotten the car wreck, but uh, did have to pull off the road, and someone came and picked him up, a close friend, and uh, took him to the hospital, and he spent about four nights in the hospital uh, starting on Friday night, and uh, he is home and feeling better, and uh, he wished you congratulations. He wanted me to get a picture of your bracelet, but uh, uh, we'll do that some other time, but uh, uh, just kind of a scary situation when whether things are going good or things are going bad, no matter what happens, all of a sudden something with your health uh, pops up and it can be very scary. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to add my own also uh, best wishes to Joe. Um, I'm glad to be in studio, but obviously uh, thinking about Joe first and foremost. So my best wishes to him. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's scary. You never know. Good things are happening to you. Then you hear about something else. It's like it, everything happens suddenly. So Absolutely. Chris has been on the show several times with us before and uh, certainly always happy to have him back. But uh, I'll tell you what, we were, uh, we were following along, and I think uh, when we were doing the show, you were – uh, you were doing okay, but you were kind of short-stacked a lot of the time toward the end of your tournament, and we'll get into that a little bit later in this, in this, like our second segment. But uh, I just wanted to say that we're following you, and then all of a sudden, you know, we're driving home, we get home, and all of a sudden we see, all of a sudden you're leading now that you, the 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 tournament, uh, and it's going late, and uh, so we kind of followed the uh, uh, the reports and everything, and we're so happy that you won. So uh, yep. congratulations! Thank you so much. It was an unbelievable, unbelievable experience. Uh, you had friends out there. Uh, we'll just touch on a couple of things here before we get into the main event, but I uh, obviously uh, want to spend some time talking about uh, the win by Scott Blumstein uh, earlier this week at the main event in Vegas. But uh, you had friends out there. You have a lot of people on your rail uh, cheering you on, and uh, was it fun in that sort of social way? It was it was great. I had so many. Everyone was playing tournaments during this time. It was an added fourth day that we played. We right. came back for, so there was so much going on that day uh, because ours was unscheduled. And but I still got so many people to pop by and watch and uh, rail the final table, give me encouraging advice, everything. And I had my bat- buddy Matt Smith, uh, who I was staying with out there, kind of watching the live stream too. So I, I had a bunch of guys uh, come come by and show their support, which was always nice. Yeah, for sure. We'll definitely uh, run some of that down uh, in uh, a few minutes. But let's start out with the main event. Uh, first of all, some general observations about the, the tournament. I didn't get a chance to go out this year. I've been out the last two years. And I, I think the first time I went out was 2012. I think that was the first time I met you uh, with Steve Carp there at the outside the uh, – the Thunderdome final table. Okay, yeah. You remember that? Was that your first year? Uh, I've been there every year since uh, 2011, I think. Okay. So it's been a few years. So maybe, yeah, first or second year. Um, and uh, it actually changed uh, a bunch. This Not a bunch, but they switched up the rooms a little bit. Right, they right. switched where the Thunderdome was. Uh, they had a bunch of action in the Amazon that they haven't had before because they opened up that room quite a bit. So it had a little bit of a different feel. And they also added this King's Room cash game area. I don't know if you heard about that, but it was super nice uh, uh, lounge area with a bunch of nice big cushy chairs and tables and uh, free drinks where you could walk up. So that was a nice added bonus, which they're running the World Series of Europe at 
King's Casino in, in uh, Czech Republic. Right. So that was a little cross-marketing that they were doing. The guy that owns that casino came by and set up this whole area, which was nice. Nice area for the cash game players. Yeah, it's uh, after being the same, it's nice to see them mix it up a little bit uh, out there. Uh, there were a few other changes with the uh, food situation, I think. Uh, was it better this year? The whole, I mean, obviously you won a bracelet this year, so it's obviously <laughs> the best one you've ever been to. Yeah, but, I'm looking uh, at everything. Th- were the changes like the in a positive manner, or is it just getting too big for its own good? No, I, I think... I, I think the World Series does a good job of, of, of handling the amount of tournament. I mean, they're running so many tournaments daily. So many people are walking through those doors every day. I, I think they've learned a lot in the last few years, and, and they manage it well. Uh, the, the food situation could maybe be better, but I don't think that's a high priority on their list right. when they have thousands of people walking in and out. Uh, so, you know, it, it it was it was good. It was enjoyable. I think they... They always do a good job. There's hiccups, minor hiccups along the way every year. Uh, players, especially poker players, are prone to complaining, so right. those come up. And, uh, and you know, every year it seems to be a little bit more comfortable. There was some issues with the cards early on this year as well, yeah. which happened last year. Um, and I think halfway through the halfway through the the World Series, they switched the decks. So. You know, they're trying to do their best to, to, to fix these hiccups along the way. Okay. Um, where did you stay out there this year? Uh, I asked you a little bit about this on the show. You, you did rent an a apartment or house or, or, or with a few people. And uh, really, that's really kind of the only way to go. You can't imagine, I can't imagine spending uh, big money on hotel for seven straight weeks. Yeah. Not to mention just being in a hotel in Vegas is... You know, it's designed to be there for two or three days, you know, maybe mm-hmm. four max. But we we just rented a house on Airbnb, really nice setup, makes it comfortable. You rent a car, you have a sense of normalcy. When you go out there for a long time, if that's your plan, you want to be able to wake up, you know, comfortably, have breakfast, go out, drive to the location, kind of have that time to prepare. So it keeps your, your, your head leveled and, and and steady throughout and keeps you fresh throughout the summer. So that's a big part of, for me, that's a big part of the summer is finding a good location. When you go into it, and obviously there's lots of expenditures, including the buy-ins uh, for the tournaments, the money uh, for the cash games and that sort of thing, um, do you have a goal number that you need to make in the tournaments to kind of break even? Uh, 20000 25000 well, it, I, I suppose it depends how many tournaments you, you're, you're planning on playing. I, I think there's so many different buying types and levels that you could really plan so many different approaches. You could play small stakes if you want to. You could play away from the World Series. There's so many options away from it. For me personally, I just kind of put together a, a rough outline of what I think I want to play that I'll enjoy, not not too many. And, uh, and then I go from there. And if I start doing well, I start adding tournaments as I go along, or if I play cash games and it's going well, I'll maybe jump in a bigger tournament that week. So I kind of play it by ear and just see how I feel. I'm not really, don't have a set schedule that I'm going to stick to the entire time, other than the big guarantees, Millionaire Maker, uh, Monster Stack, these things that you really want to be in. They're going to have big fields. So that's 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 the way I approach it. Well, I look at uh, how you did. You had six caches. How many tournaments did you play? I played roughly 20 or 22 tournaments. Okay. And uh, you started off with a Colossus with a very small cache. And uh, the marathon was kind of like your start of a roll there. You made 14K. Uh, finished 42nd in the marathon, which was a huge field. Yeah. Uh, so that was a good event for you. Yeah, marathon was the, the tournament I thought. It was going to be it for me. I, I was getting deep, and I had a bunch of chips. Everything seemed to be going right. And then just at the end of the day, whatever the second to last day was, I just kind of lost a big, a bunch of big pots, and uh, it kind of fell apart where I, got, I went short stack into the next day and ended up busting rather quickly after that. So it, it's, it's, it's the feeling that you play for the entire time in a tournament is, okay, I'm deep, I have chips, there's 40 people left, this is really going to happen. And then it kind of crumbles really quickly, and you're like, oh, I guess not. But <laughs> but it's uh, it was also nice to get a nice cash in there, so it keeps your spirits up, and you go on and play the next tournament. You had six caches altogether. Of course, the big one, uh, the bracelet win in uh, 
the $1,500 No Limit Hold'em Bounty event, and I want to get to the specifics of that, but you won 266000 so obviously it was a profitable uh, summer for you out there. Uh, not that you haven't won big tournaments before. At the end of 2015, you had those two big uh, scores, a win and a second, and uh, then you also had the... Uh, the bracelet win or the ring win at the circuit event uh, yes. in the same uh, general time period. Anyway, we'll get into some of that tournament eventually, but I do uh, I do want to touch on the main event because uh, this is our first show since it finished, and I got the chance to see a lot of the TV coverage. Um, how important was that to you to kind of stay up with that, and was it more for entertainment purposes? Uh, to learn something about the game or the players that you might le- meet later. Uh, what was your view of watching the main event, since there was good coverage on ESPN? For me, I, firstly, they, they changed the way they covered the main event for right. the first time Big in a difference. long time. So they, they got rid of the November 9, and they played down to a winner all in July, right. which has been new for, for quite a while now. And I... Firstly, kind of liked it as a player. You know, when when you're playing a tournament, it's nice to finish the tournament off as quickly as possible because if it's going well for you, you want to keep playing. Right. Uh, you know, there were some changes that might come up where people couldn't get coaching in time or people didn't have that rest to kind of look forward to what they were playing for. But I'm I'm a big fan of the, of, of the change they made, and I'm also a big fan of the main event in general. I I, I want to watch what's going on. I got into poker because poker was televised and because people were winning the main event. So for me, no matter what, I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch the coverage on ESPN. I love to watch the final table. I love to see who's going to pop up, whether it's people you've heard of before, whether it's unknowns, what the storylines are going to be. So there's so many different things to enjoy when you're watching the coverage, whether it's strategy talk, whether it's entertainment value, some guy with a cool jacket who's never played <laughs> poker before. You know, it, it, there's so many things that you can enjoy watching the right. coverage, and uh, and it, it's it's great. I mean, I watch it as a fan, as, as a player. It, it doesn't, really doesn't matter. Uh, did you get the feeling, I don't know if you being there, it was any different for you, but did you get the feeling that uh, uh, the magician, uh, I thought he did a great job, but I don't think that he got along that well with Norman Chad, and I don't know if that was manufactured or just trying to be, uh, you know, funny or that sort of thing. But they didn't seem like they uh, got on too well. Yeah, you think something's going on behind I, the scenes? I, I do, I yeah. do. Maybe. I think that I, I'm sure that Norman, who has been uh, with Lon since just about the beginning of the coverage, probably is not thrilled with having a third person share the spotlight to okay. start off. Uh, but a lot of things, it seemed to get very tense to me. I, I wondered how much of it was real and how much of it was manufactured. Yeah, well, it seems like Lon and Norm have had this ongoing you know, relationship rapport for a long time, and Lon kind of defaults to Norm's comedic chops and, and what have you. And then I guess maybe it's just an added X factor that they, they're not used to. Maybe Norm and Chad likes to be the show. Uh, but I, I think... I think it was fine. I didn't notice anything too out of line. I think they do so much coverage every day. They have to fill so many hours with commentary that there's going to be times where there's some dead air maybe or they don't really know what to comment about the hand. Someone might be thinking for a long time. So, you know, these guys are just sitting there trying to think of something to right. say in the moment. And, and, and Antonio is not a commentator by trade, so he's doing his best to fill in strategy and comedy, entertainment, etc. So I, I think they did a good job. These guys are under a lot of pressure to fill the time and, and yeah. say something funny or whatever, but I think it was fine. How about uh, Helmuth and Negranu on the on the breaks, uh, talking strategy and analyzing hands? you get a lot out of that? or uh, you know, Because they always seem to be on the opposite sides of hand. Uh, it's, I know you can look at things very differently, but... Uh, you know, I, it always seemed like they were uh, kind of polarized as far as their analyzation. Yeah. This, to me, is the more interesting matchup, is Negranu and Helmuth okay. next to Kara Scott on the break desk. It just always seems to me like Helmuth is going with something, and then once it gets on Daniel, he just pushes aside what Helmuth just said, right? you know, and just kind of takes a couple jabs at him and then unleashes his strategy talk. So. I think they have a little feud going on. Uh, that's what I, the right. sense that I get. But it just always seems like they disagree. I think Helmuth looks at the game way differently than uh, Negranu especially, but a lot of other people. So 
there th- those disagreements are going to happen. But I think it's good for TV ultimately to have two different perspectives. Uh, let's take our first break on the show uh, fairly early, but uh, I, I do want to get to uh, the main event a little bit uh, in our next segment, and then the following segment we'll talk about Chris's bracelet win and some of his thoughts about what went on out there. But uh, this is one of those shows I know I could do four hours, but uh, we don't have four hours. But uh, <laughs> uh, certainly so much uh, to talk about, and uh, obviously we'll have some fun here. But uh, we'll take a break on the show. We'll be back uh, after these messages. You're listening to Poker Action Line, and don't forget. You can always pick us up on SoundCloud. It's probably the best place. And uh, we'll be back after this. This is Poker Action Line. This is Big Dave for PlaceYourChipsCaribbean.com. Want to know what's really cool? Your charitable tax-deductible donation every time you play. PlaceYourChipsCaribbean.com, the feel-good gateway to fun and prizes. Play free. Learn our system. Get 50,000 free chips and play for prizes. Play for scholarships that benefit Caribbean students. PlaceYourChipsCaribbean.com. Take it from Big Dave. A win for you is a donation to Caribbean education. PlaceYourChipsCaribbean.com. Hey, what's up? Thinking about you. XOXOXO. Want to snuggle. Dot, dot, dot. JK, hit me back. You getting these texts? Question mark. We should hang later. I miss you. Holla at ya, boy. Holla back. Holla back. Holla back. Are you at home? Where are you? What are you doing? OMG, you are making me mad. Are you with your ex? You better text me back. I'm waiting outside your house. Relentless, aggressive texting is like sending an angry robot to deliver your message. When does the robot become dangerous? Let us know at thatsnotcool.com. That'snotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Back on the show, Big Dave Lemon and Chris Bolek tonight sitting in for uh, Joe. Joe is uh, uh, out of action uh, after a medical uh, emergency over the weekend, and we wish him the very best and hope he gets back very soon. Uh, May have to have a couple of uh, guest hosts over the next couple of weeks, but we'll do our best here and uh, hope that Joe gets back as soon as possible. Uh, back with Chris Bolick, though, who won a bracelet this year at the World Series of Poker event number 50. Uh, just a quick question about that. It was a bounty tournament, which I always enjoy. Uh, does that change the way you play to try to knock guys out when you really uh, maybe shouldn't? I, I know that you're supposed to change the way you play. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to admit that I don't exactly know how I'm supposed to change the way I play for a bounty tournament, but it, it in the beginning it was crazy action. Everybody was going after bounties. Early on day one, people were just getting stacks in and, and calling all-ins left and right. So the tournament was a lot of fun. There was just way more pots being played than a normal event. And as the tournament progressed, that kind of subdued a little bit, and people just started playing a little more for longevity in the tournament. Okay. But it added a great element early on. So. Okay, we'll get back to that. But uh, let's talk about the main event a little bit. Uh, John Hesp was, well, obviously the, the magician who we mentioned in the first segment was thrilled with the guy and thought he was great for poker, and, and he was very entertaining. He, of course, was the gentleman with the Panama hat and the uh, colorful jacket. Uh, as I mentioned last week on the show, we're, th- we're familiar with colorful jackets because Tom Schneider uh, is some friends of mine are involved with a loudmouth company, and he wears the loudmouth jackets, which are really crazy, like uh, cows and... Okay. Uh, all crazy kind of stuff, and okay. he's been on Poker Night in America. But um, there also was a guy that wore a Superman suit. I don't know if you got a chance to play with him. His name was uh, uh, Wex, I think. His I last name was Wex. I did not play with him. I saw I saw him on a couple of the coverage videos and, and stuff like that. A lot of people will, will do occasionally wear some pretty bizarre things. Did you see that at the main this year? I didn't notice too much. I think... You know, people try to get on the coverage, right. walking in the hallway. I, I was joking with my friends, like, you you walk through the hallway the whole summer, everyone's kind of staring at their feet if they busted or ready to play a tournament. And then as soon as the main starts, the energy just ramps up and people are yelling into the cameras, you know, excited <laughs> about day one of the tournament, whereas right. usually they're just 
just moseying around to get to their starting table. But the main event is a lot of fun. I think people have a lot of fun with it, as they should. So, Well, you got a lot of people, and most of these people that dress up and that sort of thing are not great players. They're, they're usually gone by day three, which you made day three, by the way, yeah. uh, in the tournament. So um, does it affect... Uh, the way you play at the table, I mean, because this guy is uh, dressed like a clown, is he playing like a clown, and you're going to play him differently? Maybe. I think I think you have to take everyone on a case-by-case basis. You know, it's very easy to play that part, too. You could dress up and be a great player and kind of know that people are going to respond differently to you. So there's an added element there where you now have to figure out, you know, is this guy Superman because he's not, or is he actually Superman, right. you know, at the table? Um so it's a case-by-case basis. People like to have fun. Maybe once you get deep, they want to get some coverage. They've watched other people wear funny outfits or be outspoken, and that's gotten them on the coverage. So you, you, it's such a humongous field. There's so many different people from all sorts of walks of life, different strategy uh, levels. You know, it's hard. There's so many landmines you have to get through. You really have to take each case on an individual basis, I think. Uh, we've been covering the main event for the last couple of shows and up until the final table, which was over the weekend. Started on, I guess, Friday night and went through, uh, I think, went through Sunday. Um, Michael Ruan almost out Newhouse Newhouse uh, after finishing fourth last year. He almost made the final table again. He bubbled in tenth place. Uh, Joe thought that was uh, one of the huge accomplishments he's seen in poker. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I I not only can't believe Ruan went fourth and tenth, I think, are the two yeah. spots that he ended up in, which is a great accomplishment. I know he wanted to final table the, the top nine for sure, based on the way he was playing, based on how disappointed he looked when he got tenth. But it's an unbelievable accomplishment. And then on top of that, what I find even more amazing is that we had three, we had four guys leading up to the final table that potentially could have their second final second table, final table right. in the last ten years, and then we end up with almost three of them. Two for sure made the final nine, and then Ruan gets tenth. So the fact that we've been searching for these guys who are going to go back to back or final table sec- second time in their lifetime in these massive field era, if you want to call it that for the main event, I think it's unbelievable that we finally saw a year where we had a shot not only at one of right, those people, right. but four of them, and then two of them got there. Uh, ben Lamb and Antoine Saoud. Uh, Saoud finished third back in 2009, uh, and Ben Lamb, of course, had a very deep run, I think second or, or I think third or fourth in, in the event he played several years ago. Uh, he was probably the best-known player at the final table uh, until now with John Hess, but uh, Lamb went in very short-stacked and went out in the fourth hand, which has got to be absolutely crushing, even though we didn't have three months in between to lead up to it. Uh, you know, the anticipation and all the interviews you do for the final table, uh, to go out in the fourth hand has got to be just uh, crushing. Yeah, absolutely. And not to mention, you know, you could you could tell Ben Lamb was prepared for this moment. If you watched when he had all the chips, I don't know what day it was, but maybe six or seven, when, when they were leading up to the final table, he had this air of confidence about him. He knew he had been here before. He felt so comfortable with the pressure, the moment, and you could tell other people just didn't. And he was doing so well at that time, getting chips, talking to people, being so comfortable in that moment. I really thought he was going to have a shot to win the tournament. And it, it, as it happens in tournaments, sometimes you just don't get enough cards or situations to get there, no matter how well you play. I asked you before the show if you had knew any of these guys very well, and, and you said no. But uh, you have played a little bit with Benjamin Pollock, who finished third. And uh, uh, you said that he was, you thought he was a good player. What were your general observations about the guys that made the final table uh, outside of Hesp, who we'll get to in just a second? I think we had one of the most fun final tables we've had in a long time. And, and of course, HESP is a big part of that. But I think, in general, the, the the two people that final table for the second time was so exciting. Ben Lamb being able to talk and be comfortable made it where other people were engaging as well. Brian Piccioli, or Piccoli? Piccioli, Piccioli yeah. uh, he seemed to just be having the time of his life. Yeah. He, could, he was wearing the emotions on his sleeve. 
when he rivered that eight to with the 11 players left, he rivers a two outer to stay alive. I mean, these these guys were having the time of their lives, and you could tell. Yeah. And it's been a long time since we had that in the main event, where you, you felt for these guys and felt the moment as you were watching it, rather than see maybe eight or nine pros who know it's a big moment but aren't showing it on their face because they don't want to give anything up. So it's it was a fun one. Uh, ben went out very early. Jack Sinclair uh, was the second one out, and they were supposed to play down to six, but they ended up uh, stopping at seven. Was there? There was a little bit of controversy about that. Uh, it was a very long time in, and uh, I don't know if the decision was made by ESPN or uh, the World Series of Poker or in uh, conjunction with the two, but they came back with seven players on the second day. Um, John Hesp was, was up toward the chip lead, but... Uh, uh, they went out in this order, Damian Salas, Brian Piccioli, Antoine Saud, and then John Hesp went out in fourth place. But Hesp was kind of controlling the action. I mean, here's a guy that uh, had career earnings of like $2,200. His biggest was uh, he, he was a guy who plays a home game in uh, Great Britain on every other Friday night or something like that for $0.50 cent a dollar stakes. Yeah. And uh, was not uh, very experienced, but was a really cool guy. Uh, the ja- the jacket uh, you can even leave that out of it and he was he would have been entertaining anyway I think but uh, uh, was really a fun guy to watch I agree a hundred percent and it's a fun guy to root for because you know he's living out a dream that he's just he, his dream was to play the main event so getting fourth place in the main event is not even a dream anymore that's beyond reality. Not, not to mention his age, which is is, is a, certainly a factor because of the uh, the long hours uh, for five or six straight days. I don't know what uh, day one he played. Uh, may have had a couple days off, but not only that, but probably hasn't been away from his wife for more than a week uh, here and there in, in, in 30 years or whatever is my guess. But uh, certainly a very tough situation for him. And to really be the chip leader for a lot of it and controlling the action – until this one big hand that we're going to talk about uh, is pretty amazing. It is amazing, and it must have been thrilling for him to be in that position. I mean, as a, as a poker player, you love to be in that position. So I can't imagine coming from his background in poker for, for fun, recreational-type play to be in that moment was, must have been unbelievable. Well, on the first night, uh, which was a very long night, uh, it was funny, I was watching, and uh, it might have been the second night where I, I finally went to bed about 1 o'clock here, and um, I woke up at like 3 and turned on the TV, it was still going, and it went to like 4 in the morning here, I guess about 1 out there. But uh, you never know what's going to happen as far as the TV coverage goes. But uh, the two players knocked out the first night, then four more the second day, leaving uh, Benjamin Pollock. Uh, Dan Ott, and, of course, the eventual champion, uh, Scott Blumstein. But I want to talk about the one hand because uh, at that point, I think uh, Hesp had 120 million chips, and Blumstein was second in chips with about 78. And uh, I want to talk about the hand uh, and how maybe he could have played it different because uh, he had a good hand, Hesp did, but uh, he was going up against pocket aces. You just never know. Uh, when the other player is going to have that. Uh, is that constantly on your mind, whether you get kings or queens or something, and you're thinking, God, does one of these other guys have aces? Yeah, well, it, it certainly can be on your mind a lot. But a big part and a big reason why, you know, you mentioned John Hesp had all these chips all along, and unfortunately for him, the, the downside of it was that he just didn't have the experience to have all those chips in this moment. Because right. along with all the chips comes the opportunity to understand when to apply pressure, understand who you should be playing big pots with and who you should be avoiding. So I think it, it ended up costing him. He ended up doing very well in the tournament, even after this hand. He ended yeah, up getting fourth place. So, so his finish A was credit great. to him, by the way. Absolute credit yeah. to him. But unfortunately for him, this hand really displayed why a little bit of experience and, and knowledge about the game and, and the stack sizes, etc., can really make a humongous difference in these big pressure, big money moments. Well, Blumstein uh, raised it to $2.2 million. He was under the gun and folded back around to Hesp, uh, who was holding uh, ace-10 uh, of hearts. So, good hand to, to, to play, obviously. Uh, you know, you're obviously a uh, possible flush out there and whatever happens, depending on the flop. But um, 
after the $2.2 million lead-out by Blumstein, uh, Hesp calls, and the flop comes out. Ace of clubs, seven of diamonds, five of hearts. So rainbow flop, but it does complete a set for uh, Blumstein, which is uh, unknown to uh, Hesp, who sees he has pocket aces. So immediately, as a player like me, is I'm pretty much in for the duration of that hand, no matter what. Uh, I don't have the skill to uh, fold really good hands, but... Um, you know, uh, both players checked, which kind of surprised me a little bit. What's the thought there? Yeah, so I, I think, so when Blumstein raises, and, and just to re- reiterate, Blumstein has 80 million chips at this point, and, and Hesp has 120 million, and I think Pollock had the next stack at 54 million. Okay. So this is a pot between two chip leaders with nine people left, or eight people left, I believe. Right. And, and so in Hess's mind, he should really be thinking about the, the consequences of playing with Blumstein in a large pot. Now, when, when the flop comes, A7-5, and they both check, Hesp should actually be kind of relieved because now there's only two more streets of betting that he has to endure to see a showdown, and he's likely to have the best hand. He has Ace-10 now. So we, we actually go check-check on this flop, and, and Blumstein checks because he's absolutely smashed this board. Right, he can't expect Hesp to have an ace as well, so he's disguising his hand. He really doesn't expect to be able to win a big pot. He's just hoping that Blumps or rather Hesp maybe turns a pair or turns some sort of card that may encourage him to call a bet. And and Blumstein really is just looking to win a medium to small size pot at this point. And, and Hesp uh, has no idea that he has because of that uh, because of that great play. Uh, the disguise is perfect. And uh, when the 10 hits on the turn, the 10 of spades, uh, he now has two, two nice pair and uh, really has got to feel like he's got the lead in the, uh, in the hand. So he checks uh, thinking maybe he's going to slow play it and maybe uh, really trap uh, Blumstein. And Blumstein bets $3 million, which is probably maybe one of the smartest things he did besides checking the flop is to make a small bet and, and really string him along. Yeah, and again, Blumstein is just thinking to himself, I hope this guy has something. You know, he's not really expecting a humongous pot at this point. Hesp checks the turn, I would presume, thinking that he's trapping Blumstein at this point. He has top two pair. He he can't expect Blumstein to have him beat, really, uh, especially given, you know, his background. He's not really thinking Blumstein is going to trap me here with a set. So he checks again, trapping Blumstein. Blumstein bets $3 million. And then Hess raised it to $7 million. Now Hesp is saying, you know, he's trying to get some, some value for his hand. He, he thinks he has the best hand. Then this pot just balloons so incredibly fast that before you know it, we, we, we're playing the biggest pot of the final table. So it goes 3 million chips. Hess goes 7 million chips. And Blumstein decides to make it $17 million on his 80 million chip stack. When Blumstein does this, which is a great play, I think, because especially given who Hesp is. So Hesp is, is pretty unlikely to be bluffing in this situation, given there's no flush draw on the board. A- and in Blumstein's mind, he knows Hesp has something. So now, all of a sudden, the opportunity presents itself where he wants to play a big pot, and he's ready for it. And if he goes to, like, $40 million, then Hesp all of a sudden puts the brakes on, maybe. Maybe, but but he doesn't really mind what Hespud does is, at okay. this point. He's holding the nuts. He's just think. He you could even tell on his face. He's thinking, "Holy cow, this guy just raised, and I have the nuts on this board, and I'm unlikely to be beat even when the river comes." So he makes it 17 million, and I watched the coverage. And Hesp, I think, actually got out of his he seat did. He did. He before he chair. acted. Yeah, and you can see the dealer kind of looking around like. Is this is this okay? Are we allowing this at the final table of the main event? But of course you have to. Yeah. They're they're never going to say anything about it. He didn't step away too far. He just was so in the moment that his body told him, "Wow, I can't believe this is going on. I need to stand up and think about this for five seconds." And he does a twirl, comes back, and says, "I'm all in." Right. For seventy-four million, for for a hundred million, but he covers Blumstein for about seventy-four million more. And, of course, Blumstein beats him in there with the nuts and just explodes <laughs> in excitement when he sees that he's about to get a double up. He's not even at risk. And, unfortunately for Hess, this is just kind of a situation that displays where his experience kind of cost him. Right. Because once 
Blumstein goes to 17 million, Hesp should be a little nervous. What is Blumstein really telling me here? He can't really fold, but he probably should have called, right? He probably should have called. He probably should have stayed in his seat. <laughs> um, you know, and it's one of those things. It's a double-edged sword. Hess played this entire tournament on the edge of his seat, literally and figuratively, and he wore those emotions on his sleeve, and it helped him probably to get there. But at this point, when you're in that moment, you can't let the other guy know you have a tough decision because now – once he does that if, and he calls, Blumstein knows either way. He gets a sense of where Hesp is at. So Hesp should have probably called and then been pretty disgusted when Blumstein bet the river again in this humongous pot. But it may have saved him some chips in the, in, in the end right. if he decided to do that. Uh, if you think about Hesp and, and if you followed the tournament along the way, uh, you know that when the first night started... He won the first three or four hands. Uh, you know, he was joking around, saying, "Hey, do you want to see my hand?" And and he show he would show the bluff or show the that he did have it. Uh, and it was really kind of entertaining because uh, uh, later on he worked in the fact that he said, "Well, you could see it." in 30 minutes when you check with your friends and see what came in. So he was like kind of playing around and switching things up a little bit. But, um, you know, that was really the turning point of the event. Now, Blumstein came in, I believe, with chip lead into that day, uh, you know, halfway through day one or something. But for the first time, uh, Hesp goes from chip leader to 24 million chips and Blumstein's up to like 150 some million. So he never really gave up that lead. So he took the lead there uh, for good. Yeah. And uh, so what's your evaluation of, uh, you know, maybe Hess could have played it a little better, but uh, Blumstein's play was pretty brilliant, I would say, throughout that. Yeah, I think Blumstein did the best at each point where he thought he could play the hand the best at, at each of those points in the hand. Once, once they get to the turn and this pot sh- sort of builds up, now he's just going for it. Now he knows this is an opportunity, and he, and he took it. And that's a big part of tournaments, especially with nine players left, so much money on the line, a handful of hands, for lack of a better expression, uh, are so important. I mean, th- these hands have such a humongous effect on who's going to finish first and who's going to finish ninth right. that it really comes down. At that point, the seven or eight days of poker that you have just played are meaningless because you're at that point now, and whatever happens next is the most important thing that you should be thinking about. Yet he didn't seem nervous at all. He wasn't bothered. He was enjoying the spotlight. Uh, you know, he created a whole persona for himself for an entire nation of poker fans. Uh, pretty amazing. And to his credit, as you mentioned, he hung in there and ended up getting fourth place. Uh, a guy who with had career earnings uh, on the board of two, 2.2,000, yeah. uh, 2,200. Uh, ends up winning $2.6 million. Right. Crazy. And it's a ni- nice change after that point. 2.2,000 to 2.2 million right. is humongous. Credit to him. I just want to reiterate that because he could have completely unraveled after that point, and, and you could tell his energy really went down, and he kind of felt like the moment was ending for him because he played the whole tournament like he was in this dream moment. And he, he was cool with it. And then after a little bit, you could tell he just said, you know what, what's it matter? I'm yeah, still having right. the time of my life. Exactly. Now I'm going to try to do the best that I can with what I'm given, which is so important in tournaments, is to forget what just happened and move on to what's about to happen. Uh, one quick point. Uh, he's 64 years old and really not an experienced player. It's nice to see that happen and see players do well like that. Uh, because over the years, people had... You know, people your age and, and uh, young players who started online, uh, some people thought that that had sucked some of the fun out of the game because these guys, you know, wear the hoodies and the sunglasses and the, and the you know, the earbuds. And really it's taken away a lot of the social aspect of the game. You said you had fun in the tournament. You played the bounty tournament. So obviously that's important to you, and this is kind of a huge comeback for the game as far as uh, a spectator sport. Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's very difficult to ask that much of the players because a lot of these guys aren't used to maybe playing on a feature table even. So to ask them to now be entertaining for viewers is is a lot to ask. So we're lucky that we had a lineup that encouraged that kind of entertainment and enjoyment. But it's a a tough sell for the players. They're playing for life-changing, absolutely life-changing money. 
So to ask them to do anything other than concentrate and focus on, on the, the task at hand for themselves, for their lives, is a bit much to me. You know, we can only hope that there's certain guys who just, like John Hesp, have enough fun where it's enjoyable for the for the viewer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's wrap up the main event just by uh, let, letting me ask you about the final day. Uh, the three players, Blumstein, a huge lead, didn't think he was there was any way he was going to cough that up. But Dan Ott uh, played very well and got close. Uh, I think got within 20 million chips at one point. Uh, Pollock played well, had some huge hands. What did you think of the final three guys on the last night and how they played? I thought, of course, Blumstein dominated throughout, and he ran very well. I, th- I thought all three of them played well. I thought any one of them could have won the main event. I really thought – I've played with Pollock before, as I mentioned to you, and he's a, I know he's a great player. Ott, I could tell, had the chops to do it. So any one of them would have been deserving uh, at that point. I, I just want to mention one funny thing about Ott, which is important to tournaments, is – he was playing way different when there was two tables left, and he was kind of going after it. He was being aggressive. He was playing almost like he was playing an online tournament. And there was a point at which I think he realized when he almost lost a hand that this moment was bigger than that, and he, you could tell he switched his focus to, okay, now I need to build something real and get to this final table and have a shot at this thing. And I just think that that's interesting to watch how people – even in such short coverage, change their approach and adapt, and all of a sudden, the next thing you know, they're in the final three. Which this is the secret of the game, really. Yeah, uh, no I mean, question about if, it. If once people have a have you under their thumb, uh, you know, and have a feel for what you're doing, you're lost. Yeah, absolutely. So you you have to keep adapting and changing, but you also have to keep in mind that everyone else is doing that too, and and. There's so many elements to this game that make it so great, and, and that's a big part of it. It's not just about the numbers and, and the cards and, you know, they're staring at your opponent. There's how does anyone feel in this moment when you're playing for that much money on this stage? There's lights and cameras. You know, everyone's going to be affected differently. So it's such a great, great event. Chris uh, made day three, which is uh, somewhat of an accomplishment in itself. itself. Of course, you won a bracelet, which I want to get back to after this break. But uh, just the main, uh, how do you look at that uh, learning experience? uh, What what did you take away from that? Yeah, you know, I felt really good about the main event. I busted on day three. I didn't cash. But I was comfortable with how I played, and I was happy with myself for how I played. So, once you do that, the rest of it is just enjoyment. You know, you, you're, you're a part of something really exciting, and then that's it. Maybe next year I'll, I'll cash it again. Absolutely. You know? Well, we'll get to the highlight of the summer for you when we come back. Uh, you're listening to Poker Action Line. Chris Bolick, uh, WSOP bracelet winner. What's that sound like? Uh, still a little weird. Yeah. I'm, like, not turning around when people say that. <laughs> you know, people call me on the street and stuff, but no, I'm just... <laughs> exactly. Okay, we'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to Poker Action Line. We'll return after these messages. This is Poker Action Line. Hi, this is Big Dave from PokerActionLineRadio.com. I want to let all avid poker players know about a great new lottery game that was developed by one of our sponsors, Atlantic West Management Group. This game is now available worldwide on the Internet and will be served as Place Your Chips Caribbean and operated on the Internet as an international lottery by Atlantic West. The Texas Hold'em poker-like game is perfectly legal everywhere and presented as a lottery game with tickets available on the Internet. You can win pick six lottery tickets and cash prizes by using your poker playing skills. It's open to lottery players worldwide, and right now this game is in a play-for-free test mode, and you are not obligated to purchase anything. You can get 50,000 free play chips per ticket for the purpose of evaluating the game with no prizes awarded until the game goes live. The lottery customer can purchase a ticket with a unique number that will grant them entry into one of many Texas Hold'em poker tables with a chip stack and like a lottery game, the prize value will be based on ticket sales. That chip stack will be valid for the remainder of the week as players can access the site as often as they like to try and take the chip lead. At the end of the week, the highest chip stacks will be awarded lottery prizes, and if you lose all your chips, the lottery ticket becomes null and void. As with regular lottery games, you can purchase as many entries as you like. However, each ticket stands on its own merit, and much like the regular lottery, the results of multiple tickets cannot be combined toward a prize. The name of this game is Place Your Chips Caribbean, and you can access a live demonstration of the game right now at www.placeyourchipscaribbean.com. 
We believe that when it goes live soon, there will be a heavy demand for this game, as most lottery players would much rather have some say in the outcome of their lottery result. Their odds of winning are greatly improved if they're able to utilize their playing skills in order to increase their chances of winning. I hope that you will try the Play for Free demonstration and hope that you will join us when the Play for Real game becomes available later this year. WFO Radio NHRA Nitro is all about the NHRA Full Throttle Drag Racing Series. Join Joe at 7 p.m. Eastern each Tuesday night for the first edition of NHRA Nitro. Featuring the NHRA's Alan Reinhardt. Race winners stop by to talk about bringing home the Wally. Every Tuesday night, following NHRA national events, NHRA Nitro is available on demand anytime on the WFO radio application and at WFORadio.com. Back in the show, Big Dave Lemon and Chris Bolek in the studio. Our best wishes to Joe Rodriguez, uh, who has uh, spent the weekend in the hospital. That can't be any fun. Uh, but uh, hopefully uh, he'll make a big bounce back here and be back on the show. Maybe not next week, uh, but probably the week after, or at least we'll hope for that, and uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, but back to uh, our, our discussion with Chris. Uh, great analysis of the final table, Chris, and uh, uh, so fun to talk uh, for me to talk with you uh, and the things you go through. Um, you did win a bracelet, event 50, the $1,500 bounty tournament. Um, your big, obviously, score of the summer. Uh, you had one for 14k, which is uh, kind of got you back to about maybe about even for expenses and that sort of thing. Were you stressing out at all going into that uh, event 50 uh, that things are getting late in the tournament and uh, you know I haven't really made my score yet? No, not really. I, I don't think you can look at it that way. I think you just have to play every tournament for itself. So I went into that tournament not really – you can't really expect too much. Of course, everyone thinks they're going to win every time they sit down, and it's natural to think this is it, this is it. But it it really happens when you're least expecting it, in my in my experience. When you register a tournament with no expectation, and next thing you know you have a nice stack – that's when things go well. And that may be a, a product of just being comfortable or being sort of not stressed out or anxious about anything. That kind of produces the best results, I think. Uh, years ago, several years ago now, uh, you won a ring at uh, Palm Beach Kennel Club in the, on the circuit. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, maybe not your, your, your best moment because... Uh, there another fellow won the tournament, was disqualified, and you kind of moved up the charts there. So uh, I don't know if you count that as a win in your own mind, do you? I don't. I don't really think about it. I, I, it's a TKO, basically, yeah, right. if you even want to call it that, because I didn't even knock the guy out. Right? I, he he knocked himself out. So for anyone that doesn't know, I got second in that tournament, and then there was an issue with the first place finisher. Taking kind of chip. taking a souvenir chip, and that became a huge issue, and I ended up getting moved up to first place, as did all the other finishers, got moved up one spot. Right. So that was my first ring on paper. I don't really consider that a win. I think that's a second-place finish, no matter how you look at it. Okay. But, listen, it, it's on the WSOP thing is now one bracelet and one ring. For me, this bracelet is like my first WSOP accomplishment, if if you're counting that and and that's it, I don't think about the ring really. It was just you know an outside outside of poker circumstance. You did have a second place finish at Jacksonville on the W World Poker Tour. Uh, you also had the win at the Rock and Roll Poker Open at the Seminole Hard Rock, which was a tournament where you were very short stacked. And I watched you be very patient and make a huge comeback at the end. And this uh, tournament here uh, was somewhat similar. Did the experience at the the Hard Rock and, of course, you've won at the Isle before and, and other tournaments like that. But did that experience at the Hard Rock prepare you for this one? Yes, huge, huge experience for me to play the Hard Rock, especially given that there were some really tough players at the Hard Rock final table. And then I ended up winning, and it was a moment where I really, I really wasn't 100% confident because of the opponents I was playing. They were so tough. Uh, so that experience really gave me – the ability this time to kind of be more in the moment, just be comfortable. And I really enjoyed the, this final table so much more than some of my, la uh, you know, previous finishes, just because I had fun. You know, this basically, 
I, I'll, I'll tell everybody I had three big blinds twice in this tournament. Amazing. And so when you're down at three big blinds on day one, firstly, you know, you're kind of giving up on the tournament at that point. You well, know, so to come back from that, it's just it almost feels like a free roll. You know, anything that happens from that point is just icing. Well, when they got to the uh, table of ten, the unofficial final table, I guess they call it, you were the short stack, 460,000 chips. And the leader was $2.475 million, uh, Tobias Peters, who was probably the best-known player at the table, is my guess. Uh, Dan Sindelar, of course, was at the table, who was a former November Niner that did not uh, go that deep in that uh, final table. But uh, when there was 10 left, there was another fellow named Rich Dubini, who also was short-stacked, that ended up making a huge deep run in the main to, like, maybe top 20. Yeah. No, I saw. I started seeing him on the coverage when they were getting deep in the main. So I played a bunch with him in that tournament, of course, because he final tabled. And yeah, I mean, it, it, that just goes to show you when you're playing well and you're feeling confident. The guy ends up getting, I think, eighth place in at my final table, and he was so disappointed because he had so many people watching him. And then next thing you know, he's deep in the main event, which I know he was disappointed in that tournament too, but. He's going to end up looking at the summer as one of the, one of the greatest summers he's had, I'm sure. When they got to the final five, which was when you had to come back for a day four, it was planned to be uh, done. Uh, obviously, it's been a long day and a late night uh, for them to c- come back for another day. is kind of uh, a big deal. Uh, where did things change? Now, you still were one of the short stacks, the three short stacks, and then there was uh, you were all about $1.7 million right in the, that area. And uh, Brian Emery was the chip leader at 6.1 million, and James Gilbert had 3.3. So you were one of the three short stacks. As it turned out, when you came back, when they came back, uh, this fella Zhao Wang went all in on the very first hand, uh, ended up staying alive. But like three hands later, he went all in and was out. So, yeah. so he obviously wanted to make something happen immediately. Were you thinking, well, I've been through this before. Maybe if I just hang back a little bit and look for my spot. Uh, you know that would be better for me. What is your what's your outlook going into that day five? Yeah, there that, was, that day four. I mean. There was a bit of a weird dynamic that happened at the final table where everyone was just kind of playing uh, tight. So what happened was all the chips started shifting towards the two chip leaders because everyone else was unwilling to play hands, including me. So uh, the reason we went to that last day is because we were just a bunch of short stacks that wouldn't bust. And then they told us, okay, you're going to play another 30 minutes. And next thing you know, we busted three people really quickly to get down to five players, but they all busted to the chip leaders. So we went into a five-handed final table the next day where there was three short stacks tied and then two chip leaders, which is a very strange kind of dynamic to have where three guys have the exact same opportunity to, to get chips, same stack size, everything. And uh, so it created a weird situation where – uh, Zhang just had to go with his hand, and he ends up busting. And I didn't really have any expectations. I knew I was going to have to be aggressive and try to double up, and I knew the other two were going to try to do that too. So I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that either they get a spot first and it doesn't work out, or I get a spot that works out for me to double up, and then I separate myself a little bit. Okay, you're down to four. Um, are you all about the win, or... Are you thinking, eh, I'd like to bump up a couple of spots and make a, a few extra, you know, 50000 yeah. whatever? At that point, I'm not really – I wasn't really thinking about the pay jumps that much because I am the short stack now. So there's no hiding behind anyone else. There's no waiting for anything to happen. The big stacks are very unlikely to bust each other. So it's either me or the other short stack, and it's one of us is going to make it to three-handed play more than likely. So it's just I'm trying to get as many chips as I can by, sh- by shoving hands and picking up blinds and annies. And just the, the best-case scenario, which ended up happening, was I went blind versus blind versus the other short stack. And I had jacks, he had ace-10, and then I beat him in that hand, and all of a sudden I double up, and I'm three-handed. Now, I'm still the short stack, but it's a huge difference to be three-handed and be the short stack than be tied for four, four places. That was knocking out Peters. That was when you really started to get cards. But, I mean, there was one hand where you uh, picked up a jack for a straight, I guess, on the river uh, that kind of got you going. Yeah, in three-handed play versus Brian Emery, I right. think you're referring to. So as it goes in poker, and I'm sure a lot of people that play get this feeling too, 
when you get a bunch of hands in a row, all of a sudden, before you know it, you have a chip stack. So that happened to me. I just started getting really good hands in really good situations. I had this hand where I had a straight draw and a flush draw on the turn versus Brian, the chip leader. And I ended up checking it and seeing a river card, which actually paired his king. He had king eight, I think. And so he makes a pair of kings, and I make a straight. And I end up doubling up in that hand where he bet and I went all in and he ended up calling. You know, it's a situation where when you've been playing for a guy for so long, you kind of have to judge, is he bluffing me, is he not? And he decided that I might be bluffing, so he called. And after that pot, I took all the momentum away from Brian, and it just started all falling into place for me. So, But he's actually the one that's bluffing because he doesn't even make any kind of hand until the river when the king comes, right, on that one? Uh, the flop was uh, queen, five, deuce, uh, rainbow. You're holding jack, ten. Uh, you know, there was a nine, I guess, on a, on the turn. Was Is that right? Yeah, I think that I think that is right. I turned open-ended and a flush draw. So he actually checked, and then I bet the flop, and he called. And he just kind of calls because he has king high, and he's trying to catch me bluffing. And as it turns out, he we go check check on the turn and then the river is kind of a disaster card for him when he pairs up his his biggest card and has top pair now and he bets because he expects me to have some sort of middle pair maybe or something to pay him off with and it just didn't work out for him because I end up going all in and I think he kind of talked himself into a call based on hands that we maybe played previously or what have you and, uh, you know, those things happen in tournaments. It, it, there's so much momentum and decision-making that goes into so few pots, and they change the whole outcome. Well, that gave you the chip lead for the very first time. Uh, you know, you're hanging in there, you're hanging in there, but all of a sudden now uh, a win is on the horizon. Yeah, and all of a sudden I just felt this shift in power where I had all the, a bunch of chips now, and I said to myself, okay, this this is now the time – from before that, I was playing kind of tight and picking very specific situations to shove and pick up blinds. Now I can really, really sit back and put my foot on the gas and start trying to win this tournament three-handed. And uh, James James Gilbert kind of didn't really get any cards, and he started blinding down a little bit. So he's getting short stack, and meanwhile, me and Brian are playing a few pots where I, I, I got the best of him in in the card distribution. So... I just felt it all kind of coming together, and I was getting really good hands, good situations. And when that happens, you can't really beat that, you know. Yeah. Uh, Gilbert uh, went all in. Uh, you're playing three-handed now. Uh, you were in the big blind, and you get pocket queens. Uh, so you really started to got some, getting some good hands, you know, at the very end when it was most important. But he had uh, queen jack offsuit, and as you say, he's getting a little bit short stacked. He went all in. The board was a bunch of blanks. And all of a sudden now, you have 12.4 million chips. Brian Emery, you go head-to-head with him, he has 2 million chips. That's the 6-to-1 chip lead that you mentioned earlier. So, um, you know, the card's got to come, but you really played the whole thing tremendous from about 10 down. Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, like I said, I had three. I actually had three big blinds at one point with about eight players left, I think. Wow. So when you, when I'm at that point, it may maybe it was seven players, and I just felt this might be it. You know, this I'm getting I'm getting seventh place almost almost all the time here. When I have three big blinds, surely I'm going to go all in, and at least two or three people are going to call, and it's going to be hard to double up. But as it turns out, I actually doubled up through Dubini when I had nines to his king-queen, and I win a flip. And the blinds are so big at that point that I went from having three big blinds to having 11 or 12. And next thing I know, I'm not even the shortest stack. I'm, I'm like, third shortest stack. So when it can change that quick, you really have to give yourself a chance. Now, even with a 6-1 to one chip lead, you figure it's not going to last that long. It lasted only 10 hands, but we've seen guys come back. We've seen uh, head-to-head play at the series that went 50, 100 hands, you know. So uh, what are your thoughts going into head-to-head? You've, you've probably demoralized this guy, so you know he's going to try to double up and get back into it. But uh, uh, basically, we stood on his neck then and finished it off. Yeah, and, and that I also got the cards to do it with. I'm, I mean, I'm, there's no question about that. I When we started the heads up, he started to get the best of me because he, he has the ability to just shove on me because he was short stacked. So I start raising the button, and he can just be all in against me, 
and kind of take advantage of the fact that I'm raising maybe a few too many hands and being aggressive. And heads up, you're not guaranteed to get a good enough hand to be all in with. So he he did a good job of trying to claw back and, and get back some bets. But as it turns out, I just get pocket eights. I have the button again. I decide to raise because I've been doing that a lot. And he has ace four, and there's not much he can do. He has to be all in in that situation when he's short stack. And I called really quickly. I'm excited to have pocket eights no matter what he has. It's most likely a flip. It ends up being a, a, a hand where I have, I have the best of it. And the board just runs out clean. And before I know it, I went from the outhouse, tied for last place with five players left, Amazing. to just bursting through like the Kool-Aid man winning the tournament. <laughs> 266,000 plus. Uh, I want to talk about the, the, the bracelet ceremony and that when we come back, when we finish up. But let's take one last break here on the show. Uh, we're with Chris Bolek here on the show tonight uh, talking about his bracelet win at this summer's World Series of Poker, and we'll be right back. This is Poker Action Line. Hi, this is Big Dave from PokerActionLineRadio.com. I want to let all avid poker players know about a great new lottery game that was developed by one of our sponsors, Atlantic West Management Group. This game is now available worldwide on the Internet and will be served as Place Your Chips Caribbean and operated on the Internet as an international lottery by Atlantic West. The Texas Hold'em poker-like game is perfectly legal everywhere and presented as a lottery game with tickets available on the Internet. You can win pick six lottery tickets and cash prizes by using your poker playing skills. It's open to lottery players worldwide, and right now this game is in a play-for-free test mode, and you are not obligated to purchase anything. You can get 50,000 free play chips per ticket for the purpose of evaluating the game with no prizes awarded until the game goes live. The lottery customer can purchase a ticket with a unique number that will grant them entry into one of many Texas Hold'em poker tables with a chip stack and like a lottery game, the prize value will be based on ticket sales. That chip stack will be valid for the remainder of the week as players can access the site as often as they like to try and take the chip lead. At the end of the week, the highest chip stacks will be awarded lottery prizes, and if you lose all your chips, the lottery ticket becomes null and void. As with regular lottery games, you can purchase as many entries as you like. However, each ticket stands on its own merit, and much like the regular lottery, the results of multiple tickets cannot be combined toward a prize. The name of this game is Place Your Chips Caribbean, you can access a live demonstration of the game right now at www.placeyourchipscaribbean.com. We believe that when it goes live soon, there will be a heavy demand for this game, as most lottery players would much rather have some say in the outcome of their lottery result. And their odds of winning are greatly improved if they're able to utilize their playing skills in order to increase their chances of winning. I hope that you will try the Play for Free demonstration, and hope that you will join us when the Play for Real game becomes available later this year. Short final segment of the show here, Big Dave and Chris Bolick in a studio, and we'll finish things out here. There's so many other things I wanted to ask you. I'm looking at my list of questions, and, uh, you know, I was just going to ask you how that affected you toward the end of the series. I, I know when I cover things sometimes, uh, when some of the late bracelets come in, there's not a lot of focus on that uh, because people are starting to really get hyped up about the main, and it kind of disappears into the ether there, but... Uh, uh, Huge moment for you. The next day, I guess, you have the bracelet ceremony where you get it on stage. What's that like for you? You know what? I, I actually, and I didn't mention this to you, I didn't have a bracelet oh, ceremony. Oh, you did not? Yeah, they okay. give you the option to take it home that night or have a bracelet ceremony. And I was just so in the moment, I just kind of wanted to take it home and enjoy it and be with my friends. And I had my brothers and dad flying in the next day. So I kind of just went with it and, and enjoyed that. I don't really need this how did, how did you celebrate? Uh, my brothers and my dad flew in. And they were going to fl fly in no matter what. They they had a planned trip to Vegas as their vacation. Okay. So it just ended up working out perfectly where they just came in and we had a, a fun weekend in Vegas. Yeah, sounds like it. Uh, tremendous. Uh, for, a, for a professional poker player, uh, does it feel like the pinnacle of your career thus far? Uh, I, I don't know if I'd go that far. I, th I think it was unexpectedly very exciting and thrilling for me. I wasn't sure how the bracelet would feel and the win would feel, but it really did feel great, more than I expected. And did your brothers and your father stay out there a couple of days and you had a chance to see it do some different things? Yeah. As I've, opposed to just poker? Oh, yeah. I took I took five days off after that. Okay. So I didn't play much poker. We just kind of enjoyed Vegas. 
a couple of them hadn't been there before, so we did all the touristy things, went out, had fun, nice dinners, shows, stuff like that. I had thing, things to ask you, like how you prepare for the main, and uh, what do you do during your days off, and uh, do you think about table image uh, when you get to a big tournament like that, but we'll have to save that for all for another time. Uh, I appreciate you coming in. Congratulations. Uh, I've had you on a couple times with some big events in your life, and uh, you're always kind with your time, and I really appreciate it, but... Uh, uh, obviously, we've got a limited show here, and, uh, you know, we'll do it again. But uh, always one of my favorite shows, so thanks for coming in. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, we'll talk more about uh, the main event over the next couple of weeks probably. And and uh, you're going to play the Hard Rock, uh, uh, Seminole Hard Rock Poker Open? I'll be all over the Hard Rock. I'll also be at the Isle playing the main event there. Which is this weekend. This weekend, yep. Okay, uh, I'll be covering that, so I'll see you out there, and uh, we'll see what we can do. Maybe another... Uh, a trophy to talk about. Sure. Cross our fingers. Hopefully. Uh, Chris Bolick tonight with me on the show, and uh, we wish the best for Joe. Gio, thank you for all your work, uh, and we will uh, keep the show rolling here over the next few weeks as we talk about what's happened out in Vegas and what's to come. Big stuff here in South Florida as the focus on this area really t- kicks in over the next couple of weeks. Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next week on another edition of Poker Action Live. The views and opinions of the hosts, guests, or callers are not necessarily those of the station, its owners, advertisers, or agencies.